I've got to say, I always find it interesting when you're sitting down there and just gathering your thoughts, and suddenly you realize that the president is not going to have a hymn or a reading. It's just coming. <laughs> so that's why I always look like I'm taken off guard. But it's good to be back with you again, uh, considering on the road with the ark, and uh, we are certainly on the road now. In the first two parts, we, uh, the first part, we really looked at what was a, a perspective to take on the ark of the covenant viewing it as God as our Savior, the work of the plan of salvation that God has for us being exhibited through this wonderful symbol, the central symbol that was given to Israel. In our second session, we saw that when we look closely at this symbol with this perspective, that all the elements of the symbol were teaching us about the principles of the new covenant that are so dear to us, the way in which God would bring us to glory. In our session yesterday, we then saw God say, or use the Ark of the Covenant to teach the way of salvation. And we saw that that way of salvation, we saw it through the whole of yesterday, is in fact the way of the resurrection, the way of the stopping of the River Jordan, the rising up of Jordan. And this is the way that we've been called to. It is our hope, the hope of resurrection. And so now in this fourth part, we come to the next episode of this parable of salvation and glorification. And we've entitled that Taking Over, the fourth in our six parts. As we all know, being well-schooled, God's plan with the earth, well, God's plan is first with the earth, and it's to fill the earth with His glory. His work or His plan of salvation is not complete, is it? Until the kingdoms of men become the kingdoms of our Lord and our God. The stone will not only crush the image, will it? It will also symbolically grow and fill the whole earth. And so, as we follow this, this parable of salvation, it isn't finished, is it? The resurrection is not an end in itself, but in many ways it's a marvelous new beginning. A beginning to start building a kingdom that, as we all hope, will stretch and know, will stretch from shore to shore and rule over all dominions. And so it's no wonder that the very next episode that we have in Joshua's account of the Ark of the Covenant, because these are all events where the Ark of the Covenant is in leadership, is in fact the conquest of the city of Jericho. So let's pick up the story from where we left off yesterday. And I want you to come with me, if you will, to Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. Having passed over the River Jordan, before we come to the conquest of Jericho, which will be the focus of our discussion this morning, there are some interesting additions that we meet. Chapter 4, verse 1, And it came to pass, when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, that Yahweh spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe a man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones, and you shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe a man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of Yahweh your God into the midst of Jordan and take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. So we have here in Joshua 4 that this event that had taken place, this, this resurrection, which we, we spoke of yesterday, which was the great sign 
the sign of the prophet Jonah, that here Joshua was saying, this event has been so important that we will establish a memorial. And I like to call it the passing over memorial. In fact, in Joshua 4, the phrase pass over or passing over appears many times. It's in verse 1, verse 5, verse 7, verse 10. It appears twice in verse 11. It's in verse 12, verse 13, verse 23. Nine times in one chapter. Pass over, passing over, passed over. Why? And what was this memorial about? God was teaching them about passing over. That it was through the ark that they had passed over. Now, it's very interesting that they were to have this Passover memorial. And of course, you may be thinking of Exodus chapter 12, where of course there was the Passover. And the word there in Exodus 12 that is used for passing over or passing through that is used in Exodus 12 is of course a very similar word to the words or phrases that are being used here in Joshua 4. But think of Exodus 12. We read this in Exodus 12. And thus you shall eat the Passover with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. What is interesting here is, in Joshua 4 we have the passing over memorial, and we have in Exodus 12 the Passover feast. I'd like to suggest to you that there is an interesting similarity yet difference between these two memorials, if you would call them. And it can help us to understand the difference when we come to the Last Supper. The difference between the passing over here in Joshua 4 that they were to remember and the passing over of Exodus 12 is quite marked. In Exodus 12, think about it. We have the Lord passing over the firstborn of the children of Israel once they had marked the doorposts. Perhaps, to use simple terminology, the Passover of Exodus 12 was illustrating God's mercy in that he didn't kill the firstborns of the Israelites who deserved to be killed just like all the other firstborns. The blood of Christ in top provided forgiveness. But here in Joshua 4, the phrase is being used passing over in a slightly different context. It's not about God passing over sin. It's about the Israelites passing over from mortality to eternal life. Can you see the difference? There certainly, to me, would seem to be a difference. There is this idea that in this particular Passover, there is the idea that they are being given something. Perhaps analogous to the way we use grace. The gift that someone gets that is undeserved. And here they are being given eternal life. They are passing from death to life. And I only make this point because I think sometimes we approach the Last Supper feast, the memorial feast, and we place a great emphasis on it being a Passover, whereas it's much more than the Passover of Exodus 12. In fact, it has many of the signs of this Passover in Joshua 4. In fact, the reality is, if you read Leviticus 23, if you ever have a moment to do that, take Leviticus 23 and if, take uh, the Last Supper and look at all the feasts of Israel and look at what the Lord Jesus Christ was doing with the Last Supper. And that is why I think it is very relevant that, of course, as we know, it is unlikely that the Last Supper took place at the time of the Passover. 
Certainly there were overtones of the Passover in the Last Supper. But you see, the sacrifice of Jesus was not just about forgiveness of sins. You might say, well, what do you mean? Well, there are many, many verses that show us that there are two aspects to what the Lord Jesus Christ was doing. There was forgiveness of sins and the bringing a newness of life. There are a number of verses that show this idea, and we see it uh, in a number of places. First of all, in John 5, just to support this idea of passing over, in John 5 we read, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So Jesus is saying, when you, when you believe on me, I offer you a passing over but it's a passing from death to life. Just like what's happening here in Joshua 4. In 1 Peter it says this, chapter 1 verse 3, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Very interesting. When we come to the memorial supper, we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. That it is death our iniquities are forgiven. And in His resurrection, we receive life. We need them both. Romans 4. You might want to turn this up. A really good passage to illustrate this point. Romans 4, and at verse 25. Speaking, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says... And perhaps we should take a little bit of context here. Verse 21, And being fully persuaded of what he, was, what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses, and was raised for our justification. There are two elements here in the, 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 in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the deliverance of our offenses, and there is the raise for our justification. And certainly here in Joshua chapter 4, not only had they left behind sin, they were given life as they entered the promised land. They had passed from death to life. And so in this sense... This was a very appropriate memorial. And of course, another similarity of this memorial in Joshua chapter 4 was that they had been asked to place 12 stones as a memorial of what had happened. And of course, the allusion to us is of the 12 witnesses who would be witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ, the ark. Where had they got the 12 stones from? From the ark. Here were 12 witnesses with the Lord Jesus Christ at the Last Supper a part of the memorial to what was being achieved on that day. And just like these 12 stones that would be taken and laid as a foundation, the 12 disciples who would become the 12 apostles, bar one who was replaced, would be the ones who would go and begin the building process of the, the kingdom of those who would become a part of Christ's kingdom. And so... It was that they would build stone upon stone upon the foundation 
that the Lord Jesus Christ had established. The start of a building process. And isn't it interesting in the context of Joshua 4 that this is the beginning of the new process in the promised land. That they should be commanded to go and get stones. And I had to picture this image to really understand what an impact it would have made. Because you can just read these things. But it's when you visualize them that you start to see the impact it would have had for those people. Because 12 people were chosen. And they had to go down and they had to go and take a stone from the midst of the river, from where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now, I suggest to you that it would have to be more than a stone, maybe a rock, because it was going to be used as a memorial. Now, I can't see them using 12 little stones as a memorial. So it was probably a sizable stone. Now, the interesting thing is they go and they grab the stone. Now what Joshua says, what he told them before at least, so they might have chosen their stone carefully. He says, you're going to carry this stone until we reach our first camping site, which I can have you tell you was a couple of miles away from the Jordan River. So you would have had 12 men, and if you've ever carried a rock, it's not something we we often do, but if your wife fancies having rocks in, in, in her garden, just to move a rock is a difficult thing. And how would have been 12 men carrying these rocks? It would have made a, a really strong visual image. What, what, what kind of image might you have thought of? They were coming into the promised land and, and, and 12 princes were carrying stones. What do you use stones for? For building. You see, the message was, we are going to begin a process of building. This is the beginning of laying a foundation. This is the beginning of the process of building the kingdom of God. The ark has, has, has brought us through, and now we shall build. We shall build the kingdom. And of course, I think there's a great lesson for us in that. Because we're going to see, and, and, and perhaps we can, we can talk about that now. When they came through, one of the first things that happens is that they are encouraged to be soldiers. And there are two aspects that we see happening here at the same time. They are soldiers and they are builders. And when we look at our own discipleship, In many respects, we have those two aspects of being soldiers and builders. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 and at verse 9, For we are laborers together with God. We are God's husbandry. We are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto us as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another man buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, then every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Isn't that a marvelous passage? And think of it in an allusion to Joshua 4. Where did they have to get their stones from? Each of them went before the ark, and they picked up their stones. Each one of the twelve. So that when they built, their stone came from the foundation. And so as builders in the new covenant now, in our ecclesias, we're involved with building, aren't we? We're involved with activities and things to, to build our ecclesias, to build the brotherhood. And sometimes, not always because we have malicious intent, or in fact, probably never, we can find ourselves building and not getting our stones from the ark. We can find ourselves getting so involved in the ecclesia that perhaps we sometimes begin to treat it like a business or a club or a hobby. 
And we are building, but as Paul says, perhaps we're not always ensuring that the building process is in the Spirit of Christ. That we are returning each time we come to place another stone onto our ecclesia or whatever it is that we are doing in building up the way from the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're like me, sometimes you do step back from something and think, how involved was Christ in that building process? Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And so it was that they were taking each of them a stone from the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come to the book of Revelation, this idea of the 12 foundations and 12 stones is brought to its fullness. Here it is in Joshua 4. We've seen the concept with the memorial, uh, the, the, the Last Supper of the 12 witnesses or apostles. We saw it in the building that Paul was speaking about in 1 Corinthians. And Revelation 21 says this, and he carried me away, verse 10, to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God having the glory of God, and her light was like unto stone most precious, and it had great and high, and had twelve gates, but the twelve gates were the names written thereof of the apostles. Verse 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So these twelve stones have continued throughout time, till ultimately when we come to the book of the Revelation, in that great new city, we see the 12 stones, the building, the result of the beginning of the building process, the consummation of all that God had ever intended in establishing his dwelling on earth. And so this pattern is continued. As I said, there is this great lesson for us of battle and build. And maybe we can just think about that for a moment as well. Come to chapter 4 of Joshua and verse 13. Chapter 4 of Joshua and verse 13. They had crossed the promised land. The time for war was also come. Verse 13. About 40,000 prepared for war passed over before Yahweh unto battle to the plains of Jericho. They were to build and they were to battle, to fight. Psalm 24 says, verse 6, This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. The ark of the covenant is coming up out of the river Jordan. Now it was the last to come out of the river. He is the Alpha and Omega the author and finisher, the first and last. He was the first in, he's the last out. The patterns are, are marvelous. And here in the Psalms, he's thinking about this day when the King of Glory comes. Who is the King of Glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, perhaps speaking of even Jericho and also later of Jerusalem. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of Glory shall come in. Who is the King of Glory? Yahweh of hosts, he is the King of Glory. So here we see the entrance coming through as the kingdom is going to, the conquest of the kingdoms of men is going to take place. And there is this, this, this host that is coming forward with the King of Glory. And there is this pattern of those who are going to, to fight. So there is a lesson for us, is there not? That we in our life today as disciples are 
fighters, soldiers, and builders. And how do we reconcile these two? Because there's not too many soldiers that are involved with building. In fact, we would normally associate soldiers with destruction. And builders are the people that come in after the soldiers to build. So in a sense, these are two opposite roles that they were certainly called to have, and I think we're called to have. I want to give you one idea that I believe is very helpful, and perhaps you, you've thought about it a lot before. And that is this. If, come with me to Ephesians 6, where we are encouraged to be soldiers. Ephesians 6. The soldiers of Christ. So here is Paul telling us how we are to be soldiers. In what sense we are soldiers? Ephesians 6. Finally, verse 10, he says, My brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. It's this message of power. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Oh, a verse that is sometimes misinterpreted because it is thought that what has been spoken of, as we know, is not human flesh. We wrestle against human flesh. He says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. He says we don't take this armor on to fight flesh and blood. This armor is on to fight spiritual wickedness. This armor is on to fight sin, the true enemy of God, the wiles of the devil. Now, the Word of God, I believe, goes out of its way to show that our war is against sin, not the sinner. Young people often come to me and say, this devil and Satan, we know it's a metaphor, but why did God put it there? It would have been a lot easier if he hadn't, but of course he had to. Because God didn't want to make the issue individuals in which the devil was manifest. The issue was sin and is. The issue is human nature. That's our enemy. And so in the sense that we are soldiers, we're fighting against sin and all that it stands for. But sometimes, you see, in the process, we, we mix it up. Our Activity as a soldier moves from fighting against sin to fighting against the sinner. I hope you'll see when we look at Jericho as a conquest of sin, that God treats it almost in the record as this abstract, abstract uh, 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 metaphoric representation of sin, not as specific personally named people. God asks us to be builders when it comes to people. So, the way for us to understand this, we are soldiers in warfare against sin, our own sin first of all, and then the sin that, that perhaps can impact others around us. We are builders when it comes to relationship and people. And just to show you this, if you'll come with me to Romans chapter 14. So there is Paul speaking about our activity as soldiers. But when we come to our activity as builders, look at how it changes. Romans 14. And I think, in many ways, this is what Brother Mark has been really drawing our attention to. This activity as builders of fellowship. Romans 14, verse 19. 
Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. Now this is not the work of a soldier now. And the things wherewith one may edify another. And the word there, of course, in the Greek for edify is the word build. It's a a wonderful study to look at the word edify throughout the New Testament, used on many occasions. It's it's one of the great callings of the, the disciple to be the one who edifies, the one who builds. And what are we building? Well, it says there, build one another. What it's saying to me is, when it comes to people, sinners, you're a builder. When it comes to sin, you're a soldier. And the difference is marked, and we're going to see it even more in this story of Jericho. One more passage on that, just a few pages on, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Look at how Paul puts it, and he was quite quite angry at this time. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 13. Therefore, he says, verse 10. I write these things, being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness. He was, he was becoming angry for some of the things that were happening in that ecclesia. Righteous anger. According to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. In working with you as an ecclesia, my calling is to edify and to build, not to destroy. And so we are dealing with big issues in, in your ecclesia in Corinth. There is a lot of sin. There was a lot of sin in Corinth. But understand this, that I'm a soldier against your sin and I will build you. I will edify you as people, as the stones of the temple. We will build together. And so this this marvelous idea is brought out as they come out with their stones and their spears. They go out to war and to build. And so the stone, as we said before, had hit the image. It had broken the river. But the grinding power of the stone will not stop until the image is completely destroyed. And the kingdoms of men that were now in the land of Canaan, the promised land, needed to be destroyed. And so we come to the story of Jericho. And we're not going to go into the detail of the story because you will all well know it from your Sunday school days. Or if you didn't go to Sunday school, I'm sure you've been exposed to the story of Jericho. Just to pick up a few themes in relationship to the ark and to this idea of the ark representing the salvation of God. Well, the first is this, and you might want to go back to Joshua 6. In Joshua 6, the first thing that becomes extremely apparent, not only is the focal point of the destruction of Jericho the ark, because it's the ark that goes in front of the, uh, it goes around the, uh, the the wars on seven occasions of each of the days, and then the last day it goes around for seven times. It is the ark that is the focus of this destruction that leads the armies of Israel. But the other interesting theme that comes out of Joshua six is, of course, if you've looked at it, the number seven. The number seven appears in Joshua six sixteen times, one chapter, sixteen times. And I don't have all the verses yet for you. We'll leave that one for you today. Verse 4, but is one good example. Joshua 6, verse 4. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns, and the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. In, four times in one verse. 
the record is crying out to us that, that this is about the number seven, about the ark. And all we've come to learn about the ark is that it is this, this symbol of God's salvation, of God's redemption for the people. So is it appropriate that it should be related with the number seven? That this final destruction and final working of God's plan should be related to the number seven? And of course, you know your scriptures well. And going back to the, the first occurrence of seven, on the seventh day, God rested. Why did God bless and sanctify the seventh day? What was the purpose of the day of rest? Remember, we've always said God was revealed to us as a saving God, that he is passionate about saving us. And the day of rest, the Sabbath day is a day of rest, not for God, in the sense that God needs rest, as we well know, but ultimately it is a day of rest for man. You might say rest from what? Rest from sin and death. Rest from the enemy. The seventh day is blessed because in this day man is reconciled to God. It is essentially the Lord's day because it is the day in which he is exalted and in which man is finally saved in completion. And we see this pattern in the number seven in a number of occasions. In Exodus 21, it was in the seventh year that the slaves were released. It was the day of freedom. It was the Sabbath year, every seventh year, when the land had to be left so that it could recover, so that it could be healed. It was the day of healing and recovery. We'll look just now at the seventh trumpet and what it represents in Revelation. But before we do that, Jesus also recognized the relationship between seven and the salvation of God and the healing of God. And I, I mentioned this before, but I didn't give you the, the, the evidence, and maybe someone's going to show me that there's an eighth, and then we'll have to change the slide. But according to me, and certainly the point will remain, Jesus went out of his way to heal on the Sabbath day. It wasn't just that Jesus chose any day to heal. He went out of his way to heal on the Sabbath day. And of course, this was an anathema to the Jewish leaders. And you might think, well, he was just doing it to get on their, you know, to get on their nerves, to, 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 to get them upset. He wouldn't do that. Jesus wouldn't behave in that way. He was doing it because they had missed the whole purpose of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, Jesus was teaching them, was put in place for man because it was a day of healing and salvation for man. That was the whole purpose. They had missed it. And so Jesus went out of his way to heal. And there are seven healings on the Sabbath day. Coincidence? I don't think so. Seven people healed on the Sabbath day. It is the day of healing, the day of salvation. And no wonder here, in Joshua 6, we have the number seven, we have the, the symbol of God's salvation and outworking and the final destruction of Jericho all brought together in one. And where else do we have that? Where else do we have the number seven, the destruction of Jericho and the Ark of the Covenant all brought together in one? Well, of course, you are already there in the book of Revelation. If you'll come with me. Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11. And the seventh angel sounded. It was when the seventh trumpet was blown. The illusion is clear. 
when the walls of Jericho fell down. And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So there we have it, the seventh trumpet. The destruction of the kingdoms of men as represented here in this story by Jericho. And the four and twenty elders, verse 16, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because you have taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the servants, and to the saints. And then that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And, verse 19, the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and gray hail. It's marvelous. Why at that point, the point of the, of the seventh trumpet, when, when, when the walls of Jericho are down, and all that is standing then is the Ark of the Covenant, God's salvation is complete. And that's what we have here in Revelation 11. A picture of the completion of God's salvation. And when they look up, the heavens are open, and what do they see? The Ark of the Covenant? Why? Why? Because at this point, all of God's plan, God's great plan, His master plan to fill the earth with His glory, to redeem men and women for His name, is being revealed in that symbol. In that symbol that represented all that God had planned. It's a marvelous idea that has been brought. And it's based on what was happening here in Jericho, in Joshua chapter 4. And it's quite remarkable, isn't it? I've jumped a few notes here, but... They were told specifically, and, and, and you might just keep, keep your place where we are here in the uh, seventh trumpet. But they were told specifically, were they not, to be quiet for the first six days. Let's just see if we can find that reference. Interesting how one page can go missing amongst so few. But we shall be persistent and work our way and it will be found. Sorry, it's Joshua 6 verse 10. Thank you. And Joshua commanded the people saying, You shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word come out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you will shout. And it's remarkable because there are these six days where it would have been this eerie silence as this host marched around Jericho. Not a word being spoken by them. And then on the seventh day, there's this great shout. Well, you can imagine how it's like when children sing, uh, I don't know if you have that song, Daniel on the Lion's Den, and eventually the lion has to roar, and they prepare themselves for the roar of the lion. All right? And, 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 and for six days, they haven't shouted. The seventh day, they're going to let forward a great shout would have woken up anybody still asleep in Jericho. And so there is this analogy here in Revelation that as soon as this happens, there's thunders and lightning. It's the shout of God. Because there is the time of the still small voice that was revealed to Elijah as he was in the cave. The time when the Spirit of God is working 
in the lives of individuals through the still, small voice. But there was the earthquake, wind and fire, which now in Revelation 11 is the earthquake, wind and fire and the shouting as the victory of God is brought to bear. Come with me if you will to Psalm 98 to see how we can, we can share in this day of celebration. This is our hope. We live in a time where, as Jesus says, we have to wait for our kingdom to come. For our ark to physically manifest itself upon this earth. But that day will come. And Psalm 98 will be one of the psalms that will be a reality for us. Oh, sing unto Yahweh a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. Yahweh hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly showed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise unto Yahweh, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto Yahweh with the harp and with the harp. Uh, with the harp, with the harp, and the voice of the psalm. With trumpets and sounds of corn, it make a joyful noise before Yahweh the King. This is almost like you can imagine how they would have been on that seventh day in Jericho. But at the same time, it's our vision, isn't it? That having kept silent, as Jesus did before Pilate, not a word, for my kingdom is not of this world, else would my servants fight. And then we are given permission to shout. On the day of shouting, the seventh day, the day when God will redeem the world to himself. So in this great day of God's victory, in this day of war, in this day of power, the seventh day of Jericho, we are left with one final message on salvation. Because when the walls fell down, Although it does not physically describe it like this in the book of Joshua, we can imagine that a small portion remains standing, for Rahab lived in the wall. And many who may have not heard the story would have asked, why is that pot of the wall not fallen down? And it was because there lived a woman there. Joshua 6 verse 21 says, And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and ass with the... I always used to ask, why why the ox and the sheep and the ass? I mean, they have no morality. And of course, the reason is, is that here is another example of God destroying sin. Everything in Jericho, it wasn't the people. Everything in Jericho was sin and it needed to be destroyed. How many people do you know who came from Jericho? By name. I only know one, of course, in the Old Testament. Her name was Rahab, and she was saved. The others are almost grouped together with their cattle and the ox and the asses. This is sin, and it shall be utterly destroyed, as we read here, utterly destroyed. But Joshua said, verse 20, unto the two men that had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and bring out thence the woman and all that she hath as he swore unto her. Go into the harlot's house? God doesn't just save people. 
He saves people with sin. I'm not told in the record of Joshua, but I would presume that having met the two spies and having demonstrated faith that Rahab, in whatever her practice had been, if it really was that of a prostitute, had changed her ways. I think it would be reasonable for us to assume that she was no longer a harlot. Why does he then say, go into the harlot's house? We know that the word of God does this on a number of occasions. In fact, where Rahab appears again in Hebrews 11, when she is recorded amongst those wonderful men and women of faith, it says in verse 30 of Hebrews 11, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. I mean, if I was Rahab, having come from, from a background that perhaps wasn't that, that, well, certainly wasn't that acceptable, I wouldn't want it to be repeated every time my name appeared in the Word of God, would you? Why would the Word of God do this? Is it not to show us that these are the people God saves? That this is the extent and the mercy of God, that in the midst of this destruction of sin, there was a sinner repentant, who had found faith, a Gentile woman and a harlot. From a Jewish perspective, how far could you go? How far could the salvation and the mercy of God stretch? That on this occasion, a woman, a Gentile, a woman, a harlot, could be saved. God's power to save has no limits or constraints. There is no place too far, no sin too dark, no history too severe, my brothers and my sisters, that cannot be reached by God's saving power. The ark is able to save no matter what position we find ourselves in, so long as we have the faith, the conviction to believe that this is possible. Wherefore, Hebrews 7 says, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. They come unto God by him seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Is there ever a more apt manifestation of that saving to the uttermost than when the wars of Jericho fell down but remained in place to save a Gentile harlot because she came to God? The ark, as we have said, was built and focused on the salvation of the children of Israel originally. Here was a foreigner, a woman, a harlot, and yet she is saved. Such is the power and efficacy of God's mercy. And of course, understanding this principle as we sit here this morning impacts all of us personally and in our relationships with others. Personally, we need to believe that if we respond in faith, there is no sin too dire. There is no place too far that we cannot return back to God's salvation. There are no limits to the power of His saving hand. And many years later, the children of Israel would still not understand that God's salvation is not inherited, but belongs to anyone who can respond in faith. Many years later, a similar scene would play itself out where the true ark manifest in Jesus Christ would be in the house of a Jewish man. And a harlot would enter the room and start washing the feet of Jesus with her tears and with her perfume that she had probably used for her previous occupation. 
And the Jews would look upon this and, and they would question Jesus. As much as they should have questioned that ark that could save a harlot in the city of Jericho. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head, kissed his feet. When the Pharisee saw this, he said, what manner of man is this? If he were a prophet, he would have known what manner of woman this is that touches them, for she is a sinner. And of course, Jesus tells him that wonderful parable, unto whom much is forgiven, she loves much. The pattern had become a reality here in the living room of Simon. This pattern that was established back in Joshua. And this woman, this Rahab the harlot, was not only saved and brought into Israel, she was so grafted in. God's redemption is so complete that it takes a Gentile harlot woman and brings her not just into the nation of Israel, but right into the royal line. And we can glibly read when we come to Matthew chapter 1, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. And we ought to stop right there and say, is there ever a greater statement of the complete healing that God makes available for all of us in our condition of sin as Gentiles, as aliens originally from the commonwealth of Israel? Is there any place that he cannot save us from? And of course, when we deal with others in our fellowship issues, to understand the extent of God's mercy, that God's temple is made for sinners, such as you and I, that the Ark of the Covenant in all its majesty and in all its power we've seen today as it took down the kingdoms of men in the midst of all of that, is this overriding message of mercy. We have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one that has been in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace. Is this what she saw in the Ark of the Covenant? Whilst all of Jericho would have been afraid by the King of Glory coming, she saw the throne of grace. She saw the mercy seat. And she was saved because she did. Her master was not austere. One who reaps where he does not sow. As the man who hid his talent. Her master was loving and full of mercy. Is this your God? Is this the one that you believe in? The one who can save from even the uttermost. And so in this powerful parable, this pattern of God's salvation this morning, brothers and sisters, we have seen both the goodness and severity of God in action. We have witnessed the awesome power that will drive God's plan for salvation. It will not stop, will it, until the sound of the seventh trumpet. All the kingdoms of men will fall flat and ultimately be taken over by the great king. The kingdoms of men will become the kingdoms of our Lord and God, and the ark will reign as the uncompromising king of the earth. And we have witnessed the compassion and grace of God's salvation. We have seen the Ark of the Covenant reach out to a woman of faith. Not a natural child of Abraham, a public sinner, whose occupation was that of a harlot. But one who believed in the throne of grace. 
A woman who had the boldness to believe that he can save even unto the uttermost. She reached out and she was saved. Such, my brethren and sisters, is the personal power of God's salvation as revealed this morning to us in the Ark of the Covenant. Amen.